how do you start as high as possible? Because the lower you start, the longer it takes to get to that high benchmark. And sometimes you can never get there because the lower you start, the more you get stuck at that level or at that brand. You'll always become a tier C institution if you start at tier C or tier 3 thinking I'll get to tier 1 someday. Quality doesn't scale. You have to set the quality bar from day one and then scale on quantity without diluting quality. But trying to scale quality is almost an impossible task. Hello and welcome. I am your host Pratish Sanyal and you are listening to The 1% Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. My next guest on The 1% Project is the incredible Pramath Sinha. Pramath is an entrepreneur, educator and an institution builder. Having conceptualized and built hallmark educational institutes such as the Indian School of Business and the Ashoka University, now he's on the journey of building Harappa Education, a platform that helps future leaders learn essential cognitive, social and behavioral skills. He has also founded the Vedika Scholars Program for Women and the Naropa Fellowship. He kicked off his career with McKinsey & Company, went on to head ABP Media and later on founded 9.9 Media Group as well. In this conversation, he talks about his journey to finding purpose. How does he go from idea to execution? Who is an early adopter and why are they unique? His legacy and contribution to the Hindi literature and much more. If you have any feedback about this conversation, speaker or topic recommendations, you can drop me a line at pratish at the rate you can also sign up for the 1% Project newsletter for show notes and key insights from this conversation and every other conversation. We kick this conversation off with Pramath asking him about purpose and how does one find it. Early on in life, your purpose and your ambition and your notion of success ends up matching you. Actually, don't think about purpose very much. You think about just getting a job, getting a good salary, making money, accumulating assets, getting freedom to live and travel and do what you want and not be dependent on others. And then you start thinking about supporting your family, your children, your parents and helping them. Once you get past that, you start saying, oh, is it all there is to life? And should I be doing something that I truly care about? and why do I exist and who am I and so on. So you have to get to the point where you have the luxury of asking those questions. Some people are courageous enough early in life that they say, I don't care about those things. I'm going to ask the question about purpose early. I wasn't like that. It took me a while to get to the point and saying, what am I doing and why am I doing this? So I think at some point or the other does become important to everybody, I would reckon. Some people discover it sooner. Some people discover it later. Now, once you realize that purpose is important, you then start wondering, okay, so how do I find purpose? And a lot of people, and these days this, this thing about purpose is people learn about it earlier on. There are TED Talks, you know, there are people who write about this. So young people 
who are prone to worry, start worrying about, okay, so how do I find my purpose? How do I find my purpose? And they come to me often and not to, not to blame them or make fun of them. I, I, I think it is true that you are curious to know what is the process? How do you get there? And what I've realized is that purpose doesn't grow on trees, nor is it buried somewhere for you to go on a treasure hunt and find it and dig it out for yourself, that your purpose is lying somewhere. Your purpose you find by discovery. You, you discover it. You, and to discover it, you have to try out different things. The more different things you try out, the more you realize what you don't like or what is not your purpose. And somewhere you hit upon things that seem like your purpose. So you engage in that and you stay with that for a long time or you say, no, there's a slight variation on this that I want to do. And then that becomes your purpose. So right now, I think I've discovered that putting all my life's energies into education and high quality education is how I want to spend my life for. That's the closest I think I have found to my purpose. This may change over time, who knows, but for now, that's where I am. You started off as a consultant. You work for McKinsey. You, you're with a branded company. You saw the world through multiple lenses. And at that point, if that may have seemed as purpose, but now that you probably have really narrowed down what your purpose is, how do you really know that this is my purpose and this is what I enjoy and I, I'll keep doing this my whole lifetime. Right now, I feel like this is the purpose and this is what I will continue to do for the rest of my life. But that, like I said, could change. And that's exactly what happened when I was at McKinsey or when I was doing my PhD or when I was building my media company. So I think it's quite natural to live in the moment and in the moment of the day, because you don't know better, you think this is going to be what you are for the rest of your life. Unless you are unhappy and you are searching still and you obviously know that what you're doing is not. But if you are in a place where you feel like, oh, I was searching for this and I found it, then you feel like you just need to stay there and you'll be here and you'll do this for the rest of your life, as you just said. But somewhere along the way, something comes along and you discover something new. You discover something about yourself that you didn't know. You realize that you have a capability that you never thought you had. Sometimes somebody else comes and tells you, I never thought I would go and do higher studies in engineering. Two of my professors literally dragged me and said, no, you're not going to do an MBA. You're not going to become a software developer. You must go study. And I was like, me, go study? Are you out of your mind? Me, do a PhD. So sometimes others believe in you more than or believe in yourself and they lead you to something new. So who knows? I might find that a few years from now, I might be doing something that has no connection to education. Right now, it doesn't look like that will happen <laughs> because you are so buried in it and that's all you can see and you are so content with what you have. In a way, you do fall into your comfort zone, even with your purpose, I guess, that you don't see if there's any higher purpose beyond this. So I can confess that I'm not searching right now for anything higher. <laughs> but if something came along the way five years from now, 10 years from now, you'll be asking me the same question and I'd be like, I don't know. Purpose is a transient journey. Purpose is a lot of your experience personified in your interests and the direction you want to take. 
your life into. At this point of time, education is something that definitely is very close to your heart. In one of the interviews, you actually mentioned that you understood or you realized your purpose even after you had built ISB in Ashoka. That is very interesting. For me, I thought once you built ISB, probably you had stumbled upon your purpose. But after building ISB in Ashoka, you stumbled upon your purpose, which was amazing to me. So what did you realize? We sometimes as human beings overcomplicate things or perhaps things look simpler once you've evolved. What had happened was that when I did ISB, it was like a side project when I was at McKinsey. Started out as a side project. I became dean of ISB as a backup. I was not supposed to be the dean of ISB. I was the night watchman, the 12th man, right? The, the two people we recruited as deans chose for various reasons not to come at the last minute. So the board said, oh, you've been building this. I was the project manager of the project. So I, I had great amount of ownership of the project. So I was very privileged that they asked me. And I, the reason they asked me was I used to be a former academic and then I had a PhD. So I qualified, but also had been building the project. So they made me dean for a year. So I saw all of this as, oh, it's a side hustle, as people call it these days, that I'm doing this. This is a volunteer pro bono effort, philanthropic. I'll remain associated. I'll do my thing on the side. But I will always have a business career. I was a high-flying McKinsey consultant, slated to maybe become head of McKinsey and go on in the hierarchy of McKinsey. And I was quite happy there. But then the opportunity to become a CEO came and I followed that. Because I was still on this business track. No, consulting, consultant, becoming a CEO of a large media conglomerate, prestigious, great for your career. So I was following very much a business career, a management leadership oriented mindset. That's where my trajectory would be. And that all of this ISB stuff was on the side. Ashoka also happened in the same way. So I was very reluctant to do Ashoka. I said, listen, I've got ISB. Why should I devote my effort to another project. Let me just focus on this one project and make it a bigger and a better project. And I should put all my volunteer side time that I have into that one project rather than doing another one. Of course, because I left ABP a bit prematurely and I had some time on my hands, I actually got involved in Ashoka and I loved the people. I, I, I always get drawn to good people. So I loved my cohort of founders at that time. But even then I started 9.9. .9. I could have at that point said, no, this is my calling and I should only do education. But I never thought about that. And part of what was driving me at that point was that I, I have a lot of friends who are very puritanical about education. And they were like, oh, you shouldn't make profits from education. You should not benefit from education. And you know, I was not financially comfortable enough for the rest of my life that I, I still needed to make. And so I took it upon myself that I will not make a living from education. I will only do something outside of education from my business pursuits, which were going to be in media. So all this complication was in your head. And honestly, if I look back, it was the more cautious, the more middle-class me saying, no, this is not the right time. Stick to the course and do your thing. Till I suddenly found that organically, I was really doing more and more education. And one day when I introspected on it, I realized that that's what I really enjoy. And it comes naturally to me. I gravitate towards it. My joy comes from watching a new program come together, a new institution get built. In fact, that's where my business skills are most 
effective. I wasn't very successful as a media entrepreneur, in fact. So that's when the realization came. But then unwinding what I had created for myself and moving to pure education took a few years. So in the process, some 10 years went by. First trying to balance both and then realizing and then unwinding and then saying, okay, now I'm at a point where I'm just doing education and education alone. In this journey, you have built a number of businesses and that aspect obviously has shown its merit through Ashoka, through ISB and now obviously through Harappa. When you think about ideas, when you think about new business models, how do you cross the chasm from idealization to execution? So, of course, you said businesses, Pritish, but you know that ISB and Ashoka are actually not really. Uh, Harappa is for profit and a business, but ISB and but I think you meant enterprises, you meant institutions. And I think the principles are the same. First is, you have to be very clear about, you get lots of ideas. But I feel like a lot of ideas are hammers looking for a nail. They are your pet thing that you feel great about, or it solves a problem for you. You think this is a generalizable solution for, and that problem exists for many other people. But you know what, it, it, it may not be. So you often find that ideas come to your head all the time, but they are not necessarily a solution for many people. It may be something that seems very interesting to you. So are you genuinely solving a problem that lots of people have? Uh, so being very clear about the fact that idea is not just a if I can say sexy idea that you find interesting, but that it actually is solving a problem and solving a problem for a lot of people. So stress testing the idea to make sure that it is genuinely solving a problem. It's genuinely meeting a need. It's genuinely shaping a big solution that lots of people will need, even if it doesn't meet an existing need, is something that is the first step. And I think that's very important. A lot of people just jump headfirst into something they find interesting without making sure that it's actually really improving something for someone. From there, I think my formula has very uh, much been one to then say, how do I come up with a solution or a, or a, or a more fleshed out idea that has something that is unique and distinctive in it, that it is not a run-of-the-mill solution. And, you know, it's okay to talk conceptually about it, but let me give you an example. ISB, for example. Now, it wasn't like we were trying to create another MBA. The problem we saw was that there weren't enough quality MBAs to hire, and a lot of good quality students did not have quality options to study. Now, it was very natural for us sitting at McKinsey to say, ah, oh, this is needed. And India is growing and massive economy, there'll be demand. So you could have rushed off and started a school. But equally, at some point during that time, the AICT had already approved 963 MBA programs in this country. I remember checking the, and these records were public. But they had approved 900, there were only a thousand MBA programs in the country. So what is one more MBA program? So then the question becomes, okay, great idea, Mr. McKinsey, but what is the problem we are trying to solve? So as we thought about it more, we realized that the specific problem that we were trying to solve, of course, was of 
meeting the great demand for talent that was going to be there in companies. But the other problem we were trying to solve is that a bright young college graduate who wants to get an MBA, if he or she does not get into an IM A, B, or C at that time, then their only option of going to a good MBA program that would get them a job at a McKinsey or a Citibank or a top corporation now, Amazon or Facebook, would be to go abroad. And that was very expensive. So if people couldn't afford to grow abroad, there was no other option. They were stuck in no man's land. And then they had to settle for a school that they thought was not good enough for them, but they had no choice. So we were solving that problem. Now to solve that problem, we realized that these are people who were already a few years old. They've already worked for a few years. And many of them, in fact, in India, because we get married young, are already married. Some of them have kids. If you create a two-year MBA program for them, there's two years of lost wages, huge opportunity cost, plus the program is expensive, plus they have a spouse and children. So therefore you say, no, the solution is the one-year MBA. So you see how the thought process works. The idea of MBA is great. You can go jump in and start an MBA program and say, okay, let's go get AICT approval. Let's start up getting, but you say, listen, is this solving a problem? And what sort of problem is it solving? And then how do I solve that problem in a unique manner and a distinctive manner. Even today in this country, the one-year program at ISP, other than the PGPX one-year programs that all IIMs then started when they saw what ISP had done, is unique. And we have a thousand graduates across two campuses, which again gives you a sense of how that prior thinking in solving through the idea and what we were trying to do and making it new and distinctive helped us scale up later. Now, you asked about execution also, and I don't want to make it a long answer, but there I have found that once you've cracked this part, then it's a matter of picking the right people. Because if the idea is big, you can't do it yourself. You know that. But then you have to hire a crack team of people and be uncompromising about that in taking the idea to execution. You can't execute it all yourself. Yeah, you just don't have the wherewithal to do that. So your real skill lies in identifying great people, setting the vision and the high bar. To, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build the best MBA program in the country. We need to have a global ranking in the next 10 years. And then let's together try and make that happen. That's really how I think about it. You have built two lighthouse institutions for India. So how do you define an institution? An institution is simply an entity, an organization, an enterprise that has an identity of its own. Its identity is not attached to an individual. It has its own independent identity. And it is built to outlast the people who created it. In fact, even in the lifetime of those people who created it, it should not be dependent on those people. It should become independent mm. of those people. It should stand on its truly on its own. It's truly independent of its founders. And therefore also sustainable. It's not a flash in the pond. It is something that survives and sustains and is financially viable and is able to grow and at least sustain itself economically. Those are some of those characteristics. I, I, I don't have a nice one-line definition for you. I'm sure there's one that exists, but at least that's how I think about it. 
I think you perfectly put it in one line. An institution is an organization which outlives you. The great example in the VC world, hardly anybody knows who's the founder of Sequoia. But I'm assuming almost everybody who's in this world or even one degree, three degrees away knows what Sequoia is, right? Absolutely. So when you build a brand for your lifetime, it is usually associated to you. When you build a brand to live multiple lifetimes, it's associated to a bigger cause. Yes. Looking back today, ISB, Ashoka, everything that has been a success looks very obvious. You can connect the dots. But when you had your initial batch, the first batch of students who potentially had other offers from other MBAs, what enticed them to choose ISB in year one or year two? You know, it's very interesting. I've now done many of these institutions and many such programs. There is something special about that first badge, Pritish, and it's a very perceptive question that you're asking. There is a bunch of people out there who are early adopters and risk takers. And they will bite. They will buy. And their attitude, their DNA, their sort of grit and their sense of purpose is very different. And the reason I say it is that in that very year, you will find lots of people who'll say, maybe next year. These guys are not going anywhere. So maybe I'll work for another year, then we'll try them later. Let's see how they do. But there'll be a bunch of people who'll say, no, because it's new, I want to try it out. Looks exciting. Let's give this thing a shot. Let's give it a chance. And these guys are actually betting their money and time. And Absolutely. They, but you see... Not to not to make the batches who come later feel bad. I think even the second batch is taking a risk. Yeah. But if I look back on the history of the first batches, you get some real amazing leaders out of that first batch. Mm. Who are real who do path breaking stuff, who who surprise you, who totally change trajectories. You never anticipated that they would even I never anticipated they would actually do the things that they went on to do. But I think that comes from the fact that they were risk takers in the first place. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken the risk on you. <laughs> you again perfectly put it. They are the early adopters. They are willing to play dice and potentially yeah. in a calculated way. Obviously, you came with a profile and obviously the team came with a profile and a vision. The first customers are really some people who really need to have a lot of conviction. Yeah. Um, also, and I have been in education myself and it is true about the education world that a lot of people spend millions of dollars to associate themselves to certain brands because there is a network effect, there's a brand effect, and it does work. There's no doubt about it. But you, in a very short period of time, both the institutions, Ashoka as well as ISB, you have been able to actually make them landmark brands. People associate with them. How have you been able to achieve that? There's only one secret. It is an open secret. That's faculty. That's it. Faculty is the only secret ingredient. And let me explain to you why. If you think about the educational experience of people, or let me even go back one step further. If you think about an institution, what is it known for? It's known for the students it attracts and what the students and their parents say about that institution at one level. And that's the teaching reputation part of it. Most people don't even know the faculty, actually. But they meet a kid in a 
party or a get together and the kid says, no, I'm at Ashoka and I'm really happy. And the parents then come and say, oh, I'm really, I'm really happy this kid goes to, my kid goes to Ashoka. Ashoka is a great place. That's what builds that part of the reputation. Nobody knows who were the teachers who taught that kid or what was the curriculum and what the campus was like. The second part is the, if you aspire to that, is the research reputation. And that comes from people within academic circles, people who also work on research, whether it is non-academics, industry, learn about what people or faculty at that institution are doing. There, there is some association with faculty. Those are the only two things that that then feed into, and to some extent, the overall impact. If you're doing some amazing cancer research or you're doing some amazing research on alleviating climate change, then that kind of helps the institutional brand. Now, the second two are very difficult to create in a short period of time. Can't be done, is my contention. At least I haven't yet found the formula to. It take, there's a gestation period to that. So the question is, so first thing we do is you put that on hold. You say, let me first get the education piece. So that's the first decision you take. You consciously take the call that I'm going to put those two on hold in the early years and focus on building the education part, brand and build the brand only on the back of education. Now, how do you do that? If you remember your school, college days, your best memories of your education are the wonderful teachers you had. You don't even remember what those teachers sometimes taught you. You just remember them as great teachers. They were somewhere inspiring in the classroom. They made you goose bumpy. They made you do things that you couldn't imagine. You showed up in class every day. You sat in the front row. You took the notes. And by the way, you also got an A in the class because you were so engaged and so happy. What do you need to do to replicate that experience? What you need to do is you have to have every teacher be inspiring. Now, typically in a school or college, that doesn't happen. You get a binomial distribution of some sort and very few outlier teachers were inspiring. What The secret of what we have done is we've said, in the early years and always in the future, let's make sure every teacher is inspiring. Every teacher is a rock star teacher. Every teacher is inspiring in the classroom. And in fact, if you find an inspiring teacher and they don't fit your curriculum, let's hire them in and try and get them an experience with the students. Let's get our students to experience that teacher because it doesn't matter if a physicist is being inspired by a history teacher. To make my point, I'm going to an extreme. Now, the other part of that equation is great students. Now, how do you get both great students and great teachers at the same time? And you have, that's a chicken and egg problem because students will say, I need to get the teachers. I need to see what teachers are there. Otherwise, I'm a great student. Why should I study from people who are not good enough? And teachers will say, well, if your students are not good enough, I don't want to go there because I'm a great teacher. So the way we solved that problem is we said, no, we break that chicken and egg by getting the great teachers in first. And how do we do that? We say, don't leave your jobs. Come and check us out. Do a visiting faculty stint. Then you decide whether you want to move or whether we are good enough for you. But you assemble all these rock star hired guns. And I'm using these expressions deliberately to make a point. I, I, I don't want to suggest that we did that. But you hire these rock star teachers who are visiting faculty. You line them up and then you tell students, hey, these are the people you learn from. And students don't care if they are your employees or not, or whether they are permanent or not. All they care about is that they're going to get an experience with these rock star teachers. So that's how you actually build the brand. So once you get that in, then of course you have to sustain that. And that's a, obviously a 
challenge as well. But that's how you start from a very high, at a very high benchmark from day one. What most people do is they say, okay, let's start here and then we'll build over time. I'll get better and better teachers and better students over time. Of course, we also aspire to do that. But how do you start as high as possible? Because the lower you start, the longer it takes to get to that high benchmark. And sometimes you can never get there because the lower you start, the more you get stuck at that level or at that brand. You'll always become a tier C institution if you start at tier C or tier 3 thinking I'll get to tier 1 someday. Quality doesn't scale. You have to set the quality bar from day one and then scale on quantity without diluting quality. But trying to scale quality is almost an impossible task. That's a brilliant insight. I love that. Let's talk about Harappa. Tell us about it and why do you think we need Harappa? Firstly, this has been the culmination of, of my life's work, if I may say so, without sounding too dramatic. If you look at where the world is going, then the knowledge and the technical functional skills, the things that you need to know about, constantly changing. And in fact, you need to learn about something new every day. I still don't quite understand blockchain and cryptocurrency, but I need to. All of us do. We need to know how to arrest climate change. We need to know how to deal with pandemics and so on and so forth. Right? So the speed at which you have to constantly get yourself up to speed is just going up. And the only constant in all of this is the ability to deal with all these changes. And so what is that ability? is the question. I think that ability is something that is inherently there in all of us as human beings, but we have not been made aware that is actually the more important and the foundational and the essential skills to survive in such a fast-paced world. And that is what has stood humanity instead all our lives, which is our ability to think in a way that is logical, reasonable. It's our ability to be creative. It's our ability to problem solve. It's our ability to communicate as we are doing without ever having met each other, but having a great conversation. It's our ability to collaborate. You and I could be fighting right now and saying, oh, no, that's not true. And why, how dare you ask me such a question? And it's our ability to be self-aware. Am I talking too much right now? Should I make this answer short? Am I being boring? How can I do better in this call and maybe next time Pratish invites me? All of these things are important in life, I find. At least that has been my experience. And that is what has allowed me to get to where I am. I did not get any formal education in how to build an institution or to build a business school. I didn't even do an MBA or to build a liberal arts university. I didn't do liberal arts. I'm a hardcore engineer by training. I went on from being a metallurgical engineer to being a PhD in robotics, to being a management consultant, to being a media entrepreneur. Now you may say, Pramath, not everybody's life is like that. And I'm saying no, but the more I look, everybody's life is turning out to be that. It's not that I'm some extra smart guy. In fact, it has nothing to do with smarts. It has to do with the fact that you had these very foundational skills around 
thinking, problem solving, communicating, collaborating, and leading that you discovered later on in life and you discovered by and by when somebody gave you a whack and said, that's not how you write, or somebody gave you a whack and said, Pramat, you better speak up in meetings, which nobody taught me at school or in college. So the question is, why not? If these are the things that are most important, that determine your success in life, that help you navigate a career, help you jump up the career ladder, help you go from one sector to another sector, one industry to another industry, show leadership, discover your passion and purpose, get into something completely new, which we all want to do as creative human beings. And if industry and employers are also complaining that, hey, I hired the best guys, how do I get them to be good team leaders? Or how do I get them to deal with situations that are not very structured and that's very ambiguous and unstructured and that's the gap. And that's the gap that Harappa is trying to fill. And I said, listen, let's try and fill this gap. But also let's try and fill this gap at scale. Of course, we can put a bunch of trainers together and have somebody go. And that has been happening, right? Corporates have been calling trainers, coaches, facilitators. But how do you do this at scale? And everybody challenged me and said, oh, you can't teach communication skills online. And I said, I'm not saying I know how to do that, but that's the opportunity. Going back to my point about this is a unique problem to solve. And why not? Let's take a crack at that. So that's how Harappa happened. And I'm excited that we are making good progress. It's brilliant. How do you think we can bring these kind of skill sets to the blue collar workers? We, we are already doing a bit of that. I think some of these skills have to be thought of as concepts and frameworks that have to be simplified and not made complicated in their explanation. These are not partial differential equations, right? These are life skills. These are things that are intuitively there in every human being. So I think the skills you need to have as a teacher is to simplify these ideas. Uh, to give you an example, we use current, relevant, contemporary examples from India to bring it to life. So, for example, you take an example of Akshay Kumar playing Padman in a movie where he's giving a speech at the UN in broken English. It's a brilliant speech. And so you say, listen, how did this guy who couldn't speak English give such a brilliant speech? And you, through that speech, you illustrate Aristotle's appeals from 3,500 years ago, where he uses logos, ethos, pathos. Now, you don't have to tell the brutal worker about Aristotle or logos, ethos, pathos, but you can teach them the importance of empathy or connecting to an audience or the importance of having a structured logic to what you say through that speech. So I think the creativity comes in taking that concept and, and bringing it down to the blue-collar worker or to the school kid. And of course, using their language. I literally mean using Tamil or, or Hindi, and we have done that. And then you also have to get into a little bit of the psyche of the individual. The blue-collar worker doesn't want to be treated like a blue-collar worker either. So one of the things we have done is, on some of our content, we've used English slides with Hindi voiceover. So your first reaction is Sabko translate kardo Hindi mein, right? Or give everything in Hindi. But hey, the blue collar worker also likes to be treated 
like the English speaking worker manager. And we can treat them that because he knows enough English to actually follow what is happening, but can't speak, can find it's difficult to uh, quickly assimilate when somebody is talking at our speed. So I think you have to obviously pick the concepts that are most relevant for them. You don't, for example, we have 75 Thrive skills and it's not all of them may be relevant, say at a shop floor, but most of them would be. And then you have to tailor that content and bring it down to a level where it relates to what they do. So, you know, we have one of our skills is negotiating win-win. To somebody who's a college graduate and MBA, you may want to bring in some very complex negotiation game theory. But to a worker on the shop floor, you may just want to help them negotiate their bonus or raise. In an MBA class, the, the professor would teach you BATNA as in the concept yes. for negotiation. Yes. But you just cannot use those terms. You put it very well. That it has to be simplified and you have to choose the right skills for them to see value so that they can actually learn and practice it. Yes. yes. I will now try to move a bit away from these number of facets, but also touch upon before we close this conversation on Hindi literature. It has been handed down to you as a legacy and also you have done some work in it and you're, you're a participating member of the Hindi literature. So tell us, a bit about the legacy and what you're doing. You know what? I've never been asked about this uh, side hustle of mine ever on, on a public forum. So thank you for asking. My father, as I was growing up, I became aware, was a writer in Hindi. You discover these things about your parents as you become a little bit more aware. And yeah. he has a huge body of work. I'm just trying to publish his full anthology of books uh, because it's his 100th year and it's 2,000 pages, uh, sorry, 20,000 pages of text. Wow. Uh, so going back, his father was also a Hindi writer and his father. So four generations in my family uh, have been writers in Hindi. Of course, I was educated wow. in English and my first language was Bhojpuri, is Bhojpuri. So actually, I'm terrible at uh, writing or speaking Hindi, relative at least to my father mm. and, and my grandfather. But I also felt very indebted as also enamored and inspired by their contributions. And my father used to publish, started a Hindi magazine in 1949, in 1950, called Naidhara from Bihar, which was bent for, and it's a very nice name because it's like, if, it just means new wave or new stream. Yeah. And so there could be a Naidhara every, in every generation. So it caters to new writers, new literature. So I continued to publish that magazine. He continued to publish that magazine through his lifetime. And I now continue to publish that magazine. And now that I've, I'm so well-versed with, or at least I feel like I'm well-versed with digital media, I've taken that into the digital audio, video social media space. And I really do now feel very passionately. And if you are going to talk about my purpose with me in 10 years, I may just be doing only that, is to really look at how can we at least preserve the rich heritage of Hindi literature that we have as a country. And, and of course, promote and grow it if I can, but at least preserve it. So that's really what the story there is. Brilliant. Before we close, your views on 
What is the role of a mentor and which was the best career advice you ever got? So a mentor is somebody who deeply cares about your success with no expectation of any return or with any feeling of competition. Their real reward comes from seeing you succeed. And even there, a mentor doesn't look for credit. They just watch from afar and are satisfied that, hey, I had a role to play in this person's life. Mentors usually know you to some extent. So a lot of people come up to me after a talk like this and say, hey, become my mentor. I don't think you can get a mentor like that. You have to have somewhere been associated, worked, be known to a mentor and trust. Asking somebody to mentor you is also a privilege for that mentor. They should really know you. You shouldn't just give your mentee-ness up because you just got liked somebody. If the best career advice I got uh, from my mentors was to go become Dean of ISV. I remember that when the opportunity came up and like I said in the beginning, I was the backup candidate. I first and foremost went to, I was a partner at McKinsey and I went to all my McKinsey partners and people at McKinsey and said, listen, I think I'll, I'd like to take a year off to do this. What do you think? And they all said, are you joking? You shouldn't do this. Your career will be finished. You lose all your client relationships. And even if you come back a year later, just think about it. How long will it take for you to develop new relationships? And by the way, this whole practice is going to suffer. This business is going to suffer. You are actually putting our business at risk to pursue your own personal passion. Worse still, they said, your boss's boss, which is Rajat Gupta at that time, is asking you to do this. So you don't have the courage to say no and you are just being a nice guy. Don't do this. But I made the a good choice of going and talking to people outside the firm. So I said, okay, if, if the issue is losing clients, let me go talk to some of my clients. And also let me go talk to Don Jacobs, who was the dean of Kellogg, which is a partner school of ISP at that time. And I remember Rajendra Pawar of NIIT and Don Jacobs of Kellogg having the same reaction. If we had this opportunity, we'd jump at it. We can't do that. You can. Why are you even asking this question? Don't overthink this. It was such a contrast. And Don really made it come alive. He said, think about it. How many people get the chance to come in at the ground floor of an institution as it is getting built? And you've built it so far. Why wouldn't you lead it? This is sitting for you on a platter. You won't get a chance like this. Some people don't ever get a chance and you'll probably get one chance of this in a lifetime. Why are you even thinking about it? And that just made it very clear to me that I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about, that was the first time I saw myself. I didn't see myself, but the first time I saw the, I realized the excitement of taking the lead in building something. Even though I was actually doing that, I didn't see myself doing that. I just saw myself as a project manager, creating an institution for somebody else to run. And that was just as well. It's, it's a nice way to build an institution because you didn't aspire to its leadership. But I think Dawn really made it so easy for me to make that call and uh, that changed my life and that has made all the difference. Pramad, that's a great place to close this conversation. Thank you thank for you. your time and thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Pratish. I really appreciate being invited and thank you for uh, a very insightful and a very thought-provoking set of questions for me. I'm looking to listen to the show myself to understand what all I said, but it's been a great experience. Thank you so much. Thank you.
You can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode on 1%.live. If you enjoyed this conversation, share it on social media and leave a review. See you next time.